This morning's reading is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, starting with the first verse. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The word of the Lord. morning. Nice to see you here through the snow and such. Uh, if you thought we were done with it, we're not done with it yet. One of those years, hey? Um, but uh, it's good to be together this morning. If I were to ask you, and, and you, should, you have the answer because of uh, uh, the prayer that Bill led us through this morning, but if I was to ask you what's the most famous verse in the Bible, what would you say? John 3.16, right? The guy with the rainbow hair at sporting events holding the sign. Um, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Bill read for us the next verse as well. Uh, We're going to use that not as a text this morning but as kind of uh, support underneath what we're talking about. For God so loved the world. Last week we looked at the promise of the gospel for Christians. The promise of the gospel for Christians individually and as a community. And a key part of that promise is vocation. In other words, uh, once you respond to God's grace in Jesus Christ, you know the salvation that is in Jesus Christ, you now have vocation, purpose, and meaning in a world where there is much meaninglessness and in a world where people feel, and this is a terrible burden, that you have to create your own meaning. Uh, And so we have this promise, the gift of vocation, That was what we looked at last week. We bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In that gospel, God has addressed humanity. God has addressed humanity primarily in Christian teaching in Jesus Christ. This is God's address to humanity, our Lord. And in knowing this, we understand first, go back to John 3.16, that God is not against the world. He is for the world. This is an address of love. 
And in Christ, God reconciles an opposing and selfish world at times, to be sure. It's the world that opposes and is selfish. But in Christ, God reconciles this world to himself. So faith and purpose, the promise of the community is our vocation. And today we look at the task of the community. And so we're with the faithful here. You made it through the snow and you at least really kind of said to yourself, no, I want to go to church because that's really the test, right? Most of the time, like sometimes, and I'm not trying to speak poorly against those who didn't make it today, but the real test isn't necessarily how the roads are. Sometimes it is, rarely. But it's basically, are you given the excuse to, right? Look, oh, no, can't go. But you're the faithful ones, right? So you have this. Now I'm going to tell you about what you're supposed to be doing. And really, we're all supposed to be doing this, the task of the community. And we do so by taking a brief look this morning at the Sermon on the Mount. This is where we're going to get this impetus for our task as a community. Let me read a quote that Ken gave me. Um, I don't think it's not from Ken, but from somewhere else. I don't actually have the source here in my notes. Uh, And if you can't see it, I'll read it out for you. Uh, a writer speaking about the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And you should be struck by it every time. Laura gets up here and she says something like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Or she says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus Christ, our Lord, said that. Really, nobody believes that. You're not doing the most you can to be poor. In another, in another gospel, it says, blessed are the poor. It takes out the in spirit. Uh, these beatitudes are things that are deeply contrasting to what we count as success in the world today. And the Sermon on the Mount, Matthews chapter 5, 6, and 7, is a sermon, Jesus' longest sermon in the Gospels, and one that continues to influence the world today. Here's the quote. Whether one believes that Jesus of Nazareth was the, was the Son of God or simply a wise teacher, it is impossible to deny the impact of perhaps the world's most famous speech, the Sermon on the Mount. No speech has been more pondered, more influential, or more quoted. It introduced a prayer, now familiar the world over. You'll find the Lord's Prayer in the Matthew account of the Sermon on the Mount. It's been uttered in trenches, churches, and bedsides around the globe. It introduced a code of conduct billions of believers have adopted as their lofty, if not always attainable, goal. While much of the sermon has roots in Jewish law, the advice given in the Beatitudes, that first section that we read, represented a dramatic and radical departure from the eye-for-an-eye system of justice known in the ancient world. This sermon's an important thing to consider in and of itself. We've done whole sermon series walking through this particular sermon. But today, we're taking it up to look at how Jesus Christ speaks of humanity. He begins with a blessing, blessing people who never would have thought they were blessed. The other people were the ones that, you know, had it good. But Jesus pronounces blessing on the poor in spirit and others. And he begins then after this blessing with sending. So he blesses them, be like me doing this for you. Pronouncing a blessing upon you and then saying, now go and do your work in the world. You are salt and light. In other words, you should make a difference in the world. You will make a difference in the world. When I say you should make a difference in the world, it's not that we are to conjure this up in our faith, though we do need to think about how to witness to the gospel. It is that if we have responded to the love of God in Jesus Christ, we will be salt and light in the world. So let me start by walking through some pretty important things. Um, And the way I picture it in my mind as I'm saying it is uh, like we're walking down a trail, okay? 
We're going for a nice little hike, but only people who would call it hikes are not hikers, right? Hikers would call it a walk. So we're going for a little walk in the woods, and there's little trail markers along the way. And you need to see these trail markers as we take up this uh, task of the community. The first marker is this. So it's got a little post and a sign. The first thing to know is that the community, when I say the task of the community, I mean the task of the Christian church. The first thing to know is that the church is for the world, not against the world. There is no other way. We've lost this at times in Christian history, but if we've lost it, we need to recover it. If you have another way than being for the world, for God so loved the world, then your way is less than Christian. It might well be religious. It might well be zealous. It might well even be zealous for truth. But if it is against the world, it is less than Christian. Why? Well, I've kind of just said it to you, but I'll explain it a little bit more in a few minutes. We are for the world. And in being for the world as a church, as a community, we are for each person. We are for every person. And we are for every person in every age. The church is called to exist for those who are distinct from it. This is a hard thing at times for us to hear. Because we think often, and I've benefited from this enormously, that the church exists for the benefit primarily of those in the church. We can act like that. And to be sure, there are great benefits in being part of a Christian community. Wonderful things. I've been deeply, deeply blessed my whole adult life for sharing this faith in a Christian community. But that's not the primary function of the church. Those benefits are there. But the primary function of the church is to exist for those who are distinct from it. The difficulty comes when often we think of sharing our faith or witnessing or bearing witness to the gospel of Christ in the world. If we treat the world like opponent, so we think, okay, the church exists for those who are distinct from it, so let's go out and tell people what's wrong with them. Then we've lost the first marker. Do you see what I'm saying? So the second marker is this. The church exists for the world being the first one. Secondly, so we walk down the trail, and there's something else I'd like you to know along this little path of Christian witness, and it's this. The church exists for God, to worship God. But God is for the world, John 3.16. Which then, and if you can see that, I hope the letters aren't too small, so follow me if they are. If the church then is not for the world, then it cannot possibly be for God. Because God is for the world. Marker three. God calls and gathers. A whole sermon series could be built just on this. But God calls and gathers and upbuilds the church by the power of the Holy Spirit for this task. This task of being for the world. So there's our little trail markers to begin to understand what it means to be salt and light. Jesus does not say, you should become salt and light. He pronounces blessings upon them and then says, you are salt and light. If we are not salt and light in the world, then we are less than disciples of Jesus Christ. Might well be good people and accomplish good things. 
There's a little side marker on the bottom of the slide. It's just something that as we walked down the trail, you went, oh, what's that? And I didn't really want to talk about it, but you kept asking, so I said, oh, that's a little marker that just talks about what benefits there are in faith. And you would say, well, that sounds pretty important because I like benefits for myself. And so I tell you, well, you know what this faith brings? This faith brings peace and love and joy. And so that's an important side marker, but we'll get to it a bit later. Because as soon as I start talking like that, we're all so needy that we think, oh, I need that. I need peace. Can we stay on this marker for a while? I need joy. And I say to you, oh, you'll you'll get those. I promise you, you'll get them. I promise you. But not if you lose your sense of Christian vocation. Because the church doesn't exist primarily for your comfort. It exists that the world would know the love of God in Jesus Christ. And so if you pursue these things, this is why I didn't want to go over to this little marker and talk too much about it. If you pursue these things in a way you miss them, So let's get to the task. The purpose of the church is not for its own comfort. It's that the world would know the love of God in Jesus Christ. So first point, and I don't normally do this in sermons, but I've got two main points and then like little sub points underneath them. So I've labeled them as one, 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 two, one, three, and then the same for the second uh, set of points. Point one is this big frame of the task of the community that we are sent. And if we don't understand ourselves as sent, then we are less than the church. Jesus says this in the text, right? Look, you don't, if salt loses its saltiness, what good is it to be trampled on by men? Which is, I mean, I was putting salt out this morning around the building and being trampled on by men is at least something. But what good is it really if it loses its saltiness? He continues with a different metaphor to make the same point and says, you're like the light that lights up an entire area. But if you take that light or that candle and you put a bowl over it, well, then what use is that? In other words, we don't exist really as the church unless we understand that we're sent. Because why would we take a bowl and put it over this light? John 20, 21, Jesus speaking to his disciples, some of the first people that would be part of the Christian church through history. And he says this to them and to us, As the Father has sent me, so I send you. So the first point under the task of the community is that we are to know, and I would put in brackets, but it's a big point, we are to know and love the world to which we are sent. We are to seek to see and understand the conditions of human life and to hear the cries of the human heart. Now, people around you that are not Christian, people around you that don't share this faith, they will know if you're doing this or not. If you're truly interested in knowing them, caring for them and loving them, or if you're treating them as a project. And all you have to do in that is imagine what it feels like for you to be treated as a project. If somebody was trying to, you know, convince you of something and they've got a little script ready, right? If they say, hey, I'll say this. How would you like to be treated like that? We're to do better than that. We are to know and love the world. Why? Because God knows and loves the world. There is a, an important thing in this that has to be heard by us. And I include myself in this, though it's not necessarily one of my big 
uh, failings, of which there are many. But it might be one of your bigger failings, is that you don't know many non-Christian people. That's like taking a bowl and putting it over that lamp. That you have even at times uh, purposefully sought to confine yourself and your family and your lives to Christian circles. This is a huge problem in the church. Because we've thought then about our own benefit for the most part, or we can. We are to know and love the world to which we are sent. This, this is the language of with and for. So often we make the mistake that the way to declare the gospel is to be against people. So often, and I, I, this, I, this actually really gets me going, I get angry. I'll be honest, I'm not saying it's, I mean, sometimes it's, it's sin. But I get angry when this word is used as weapon rather than life-giving word. But we can fall into those traps in thinking that the way to convince the world or to share our faith is to oppose. In 1928, Dr. John Watson, he was at the time the president of the American Psychological Association, he published a book called The Psychological Care of Infant and Child. So how do you think John B. Watson was telling people to raise their kids in 1928? Well, he had a big warning for mums in particular. Why do people always go at the mums? Right? If I'm a dad and I'm walking through a grocery store and my little kid is crying, everybody feels sorry for me. If I'm a mum and I'm walking through a grocery store and my kid is crying, everybody feels upset at me. Well, John B. Watson was maybe one of the first people that took this approach because he used words like, be careful as to how much mothering love you show to your child. He cautioned people, parents in general, but mums in particular, against loving their kids too much and showing too much love. He said, in the raising of children and infants, infants don't kiss them too much or hug them too much because too much, quote, mother love will make them become weak and fearful. Now, the interesting thing to me, one of the interesting things to me, is that I think we're still trying to get over this. I think that people still think sometimes that the way to raise kids is withhold love. Don't make them too weak. Let them know you're disappointed, right? Keep kind of a distance. The trouble with John B. Watson's thinking, and I don't think he was was vindictive at all, I think he believed this, is that it is proven to be entirely false. It doesn't work. In other words, they did other experiments later showing children, and this terrible things they... can't imagine they'd be allowed to do this now, but showing children who otherwise had everything they needed, like food and, you know, the basics of life, um, but without love, they could not develop, without that constant affectionate love. They didn't get stronger, they got weaker. Now, why do I share this now as we think about how we are to know and love the world? Because if this doesn't work in parenting, then why do we think it works in witnessing to the gospel of Jesus Christ? We too too often have this idea that love is weak. It still exists in church when we say things like, you know, don't talk to me too much about love because God's also just, right? You've got to show me that just side. The truth is his justice is contained within his love. He is 100% just, but it's contained within his love. 
And love is not weak. Sentiment is. And so as we consider what it means to share our faith with other people, even people of other faiths, we are not to treat them as opponent or as project, but we are to love them. And all you need to do in asking what does it mean to love them is you know what love feels like. And you can't justify your own fear or your own desire to keep a distance and saying, this is the John B. Watson way of thinking. Well, I do love them, but in order to love them, I'm really going to be against them. Point one, two. We need to see that God is the God of all people. I'm not saying that all people are Christians. But what I am saying is that Jesus Christ died and rose again for all. Thus, the community of the church should be the place where we can be honest about our humanity, that we are self-centered, that we are sinful, that we are fearful, that we are hard of heart, right? The things we pray in our prayers of confession, that we don't do the things we should do, that we do things we shouldn't do, all of these things. And I think that most people in my experience, most non-Christian people, actually don't think they're altogether wonderful, They're willing, in conversations of acceptance and love, to admit shortcomings, failings. They might not use the word sin, but it's an important word. We are to be honest about humanity, but always generous about God's love. So often the world is not known and loved in Christian faith, and I would imagine other faiths too. So often the world is not known and loved, but rather preached at. And this will not function in showing God's love to the world. Point one, three, the task of the community. As we are with the world, we are in the world, and you know this text from uh, knowing your Bibles, those who do, but we are not of the world. Many of you hopefully have that text memorized. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. We are not to conform to the world. There is, in Christian understanding, there is, and I don't You know how that slide goes like that? So it's like, but here's the secret. Um, It's not a bait and switch. It's not like saying, you know, God loves the world, but, you know, really he's, he's mostly upset all the time. And so I've talked about this before, but it's an important point for you to understand that there is within God's yes to the world a no. This is how we are to be in the world, but not of the world. We are not to conform to the world. But we have to be very careful about what that no means. We've struggled with this so often. And it's not always true, and sometimes it would be the fault of people who make quick judgments on religion in general, maybe Christianity in particular, but maybe they've had an experience in their upbringing, whatever, where if you were to ask them, what's your first impression of the Christian church, they would start with a no. Right? They would say, well, they told me I wasn't allowed to do this, or right? Now, that might be misunderstanding on their part, but it also might be something that they've experienced. Now, that's, if that's happened, there's been an error. Because the Christian church is not a no to the world. It's a yes to the world. But because there's a no contained within that, in other words, we're not to conform to self-centered ways. There are ways of the world that are not Christian. But the no cannot ever take on more emphasis than the yes. can never, ever be that way. It's contained always within this yes to humanity. And the no is not a deception. It's just that it's never as big as this yes of God to the world. So what would the no be towards? Well, to hatred, to hierarchy, to fear, to division, 
to one being better or more important or more human, more significant than the other, more elevated above the other. The no would be to elevating ourselves above God or to living by appetite alone. But the problem is, and this is so important to me, I think we're still working on this, and it's okay, I'm not stressed out about it. But the problem is, when the no becomes the primary message, the first thing that we lose is the gospel itself. And we can spend decades, and and sometimes, and I say this with a sympathetic heart, sometimes people can live entire adult lives mostly on the engine of the no. I'm always astounded by those people. I think it takes incredible energy to, to be energized by being against something for that long. It's, the freedom is found in the yes of God. In Jesus Christ's time, the Pharisees represented the people who understood that there was a no to be declared. But they didn't understand that that no was contained within a bigger positive frame. And so they began at times... And they weren't like bad, terrible people. But Jesus worked against their groupthink when their no actually made it seem that God was against people. When their no became a way of separation. And the key mistake that they made was that they did not... So when I say separation, they, when they separated themselves from other people as if they were more appealing to God and these other people were less. If you have any of that in your Christian faith, please hear this. If you have any of that left in your Christian faith, you've got work to do. Like God's secretly kind of, maybe not even secretly, more pleased with me. Or like he, I shouldn't say pleased, but loves me more than this other person. If there's any of that left, you still have work to do. And the Pharisees had that. And the reason the Pharisees had that is they did not believe that they shared in the transgression, the sin of other people. And you make the same mistake. You identify other people as sinners and don't include yourself. The world continually divides, the gospel reconciles. And if we divide like this, we conform to the world. We are not to be of the world, even as we're in the world. Our task is to understand that God is for the world. Each person and every person, here's how Jesus says it, you are salt and light. The world needs this gospel. The second big point is that we are given this, and I include joyful there, even though I'm going to make the point in the last sub-point here. We are given this joyful task by Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. Many of you have this memorized as well. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. Beautiful text. This is what Bill was praying about. We are simply to proclaim Jesus Christ. To simply proclaim Jesus Christ, the one true light. It is true, and as I list kind of problems that we have in the church and you have in your own walk in faith, we do have a problem with discipleship. I mean, not many of us are really like, I think I'm trying each day to be a disciple and to grow in my faith. We can at times lose that. And the church needs to be reminded that we are to help in making disciples, one another and others. But discipleship is never to be an end in and of itself. In other words, uh, go and make disciples doesn't mean that the church circles around itself and makes this group of disciples and doesn't bring the message to the rest of the world. In Jesus Christ, we see what it is like that God is with man. In other words, if you want to know what God and humanity look like together, 
we look at Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, we see what it is like that man is with God. What would a person look like if they truly loved and knew God? Some of you have glimpses of this because people can reflect this. We are made in God's image. But to the depth, what would a person look like if they truly knew and loved God? Well, they would look like Jesus Christ, our Lord. That is what we mean when we say Jesus Christ is the one true human. Or language in our scripture that uses this is when we're told Jesus is the son of man. So the first sub-point under there, the question before all of us is simply this. And I say this to Christians and non-Christians. The question before all of us is, will will we receive the gospel? The gospel that Jesus Christ is God with man and man with God. In so many ways, I have not received the gospel. As I think about what it might mean for loved ones and others, friends, family, community, to respond to the love of Jesus Christ, I must always put before myself the question, am I receiving the gospel? If the gospel of Jesus Christ has not remained new to you, if it has become stale, then it is less than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it's always new. Always salt, always light. We can act as if the gospel is some kind of understanding. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, we've accepted this belief system, and we hold this belief system, and maybe somebody else will believe it as well. That's not gospel. And if you hold on to that, it becomes really stale. And some of you have known stale Christians. Right? People who supposedly respond to the gospel, but they're just not joyful in any way. That means that the gospel isn't new to them. Are you receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or has it become worn out? Will even the Christian receive the gospel? Good news today. Will I receive the gospel and how I interact with other people? And how I go through my day? Because much of my life, truth be told, much of my life, this is what it means to be human apart from God. Not with God in Jesus Christ. But much of my life is hostile to the gospel. I'm more interested in my own comfort, my own control, right? My own sense of peace and security. And much of the way I set things up in my life is hostile to the gospel. I'm always confronted with this question, will I receive? Secondly, we are not free to proclaim any other realities above Jesus Christ. Our mission is not a moral mission. Please hear this, and if this upsets you, then maybe you're getting it. Christianity is not a religion based on morality. It's not. It is distinct from other religions in this way. To a large degree, Judaism and Islam are based on morality. Codes. Christianity is not. Christianity is based on forgiveness. It changes everything. Now, you may have lived, known, worked with, or been a Christian who has acted as if Christianity is a moral religion, that that's its heart. And when you walk down that trail, you can lose sight of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you can begin to treat people as if the primary thing that matters is if you can get them to think a certain thing and act in a certain way, live according to a code. But they may not know Jesus Christ. Our mission is not primarily a moral mission, though morality is a, is a part of the Christian faith, to be sure. 
Even in this text where it says, people will see your good deeds, the translation there is more than simply saying, go, you know, do a bunch of good things. You are salt and light because of this responsiveness to Jesus Christ. So our mission is not primarily a moral mission. And so people like me will always push against that. And some of you have experienced that from me. If it's, you know, I push against that sometimes. I know that. And that's why. Because I'm really, really conscious of turning Christianity into mostly being about morality. That's a secondary matter. In fact, Jesus is not a means to an end. He's not someone that exists simply so that we can become good. And if, then if we become good, guess what? We don't need him anymore. See, that's the trouble we make. But not only is our mission not a moral mission primarily, our mission is not to promote some other cultural value above Jesus Christ. Not even the good ones. Not even things like acceptance and grace and love. These are wonderful things. They are present in the life of a Christian if they're reflecting the love of Jesus Christ. But the world is not saved by grace. The world is saved by grace in Jesus Christ. The world is not saved by love. All you need is not love. You need Jesus Christ. He shows you what love is. And so these things are wonderful. And you should promote them in the world. But they are not, in Christian faith, the the subject of the message that we bring. Christian people should be the most gracious, the most loving, the most accepting. Why? Because they have been transformed by Jesus Christ. And it's to, to him that Christians attest. If along the way I must speak about these cultural values, that's fine. But if I can just get somebody to be as loving as possible, I may have helped them a great deal. But I haven't shown them Jesus Christ, my Lord. Both of these morality and these wonderful cultural values can be important, but they are to not supersede the declaration of Jesus Christ. If they do, we are no longer the Christian church. We're something else. We're moral crusaders or well-meaning people. We have no freedom to declare or call upon other lords. Consider the crazy idea that a nation or a country, even Christians in a country within this world, could become more energized by nation than they are by Jesus. What would it look like when patriotism is traded for faith? Well, you can do some reading and find out what it looks like. Our address, finally, is to be a joyful address. Uh, I want to do an imaginative experiment for you, with you. So we could do this here because there's not a ton of us here this morning. And I could get you to, now we're going to stretch and move around the room. And, um, so you can just imagine that. You don't have to do it. And there'll be no breaking into small groups and no sharing your most embarrassing moment. But if we were going to do this, here's what I would do. I would say, you're going to have to divide yourself into two groups. One will be this side. And one will be this side. And I'm going to look and judge on who I know in each section. No, I'm kidding. One side is you've got to make the statement or you basically believe the world's a terrible place and getting worse. And so the world's a terrible place and getting worse is over here. Okay? Things are getting worse and worse and worse. And over here is, no, things are actually getting better. Okay? And so don't do it. But it would be funny to see. And who would be the ones, because I know I know there's some smarty pants in the room, who would be like stand right in the middle and go, well, it's kind of both. I'm like, yeah, congratulations. Um, right? 
You've got to make a choice. Now, which one would it be? Now, I know from talking to you, what would also be funny is if we could just freeze this. You know, we've got all afternoon. There's no football game today. It's like 12 hours. People say church is long. Try watching the Super Bowl. But anyway. Uh, we could go through here, and I know most of you or all of you, and I could choose what side to put you on. Aha. And you would be like, well, you don't really know me. Or you would be like, oh, he does really know me. Here's the thing in Christian faith. This exercise, things are getting worse. Things are getting better. You know what we're to say to it as Christians? It's not the question we ask. Because in some ways, things are getting worse. But please hear this if you would put yourself on this side of the room. In very many ways in the world, things are getting better. And so when you go and you talk to somebody else, a friend or a family member, particularly if you're older and you're talking to a younger person and you're telling them how the world is terrible and getting worse, that's not a great conversation. They're not going away thinking, I'm sure glad so-and-so told me that. Even if you're right. In fact, particularly if you're right. You know why? Because they have a future. But if you just say, well, everything's great and getting better, then you fail to see that there are some people who think it's just getting worse. The Christian response is to say, in some ways things are getting, are getting worse, in many ways things are getting better, but I don't attest to either one of them because the hope of the world and the hope of my life is Jesus Christ who reigns over all. This is not a Christian conversation to have. Are things getting better or worse? The reality is that God has turned towards humanity in Jesus Christ and offers life and salvation. That is why our message is to be unconditionally bright. Whether this is true or this is true. And so when I use unconditionally bright in this context, I say, it's kind of funny you think that way because in a lot of ways things are getting worse. But the message of the gospel is bright. And when I'm over here, I say, oh, it's so hard that you feel this, and I understand why you do, but the message of the gospel is unconditionally bright. The task of the community is not for the church to trust in itself, but in the promise of the gospel. The gospel is salvation in Christ, the love of God, bigger than your sin or your selfishness. It gets you onto a new course, and when you understand the newness of the gospel... You are free. Free from that exercise. So we have the opportunity to respond. And we're going to respond uh, this afternoon by taking communion. We offer you the opportunity, if you have not done this, to put your faith in Jesus Christ. To simply pray, Lord Jesus, help me to trust in you. To learn what that means. To trust in you rather than myself. I give my life to you. We respond also as Christians and we say anyone is welcome to take the bread and the cup who knows Jesus or would like to. So we take the bread and we say this is the body of Jesus Christ broken for the life of the world. He gave his life for the life of the world. And then this is the blood of Jesus Christ poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. The heart of our faith is forgiveness in Christ. And so if you would like to receive you receive. Let me pray for the communion and then we'll uh, pass it out.
So come, Holy Spirit, and guide us in this time. Help us to be renewed in taking up this task of our community in witnessing to what you have done for us in the whole world. We pray for those in our midst who are in times of need or difficulty. We have some listed in our little bulletin sheet. We think of Tierney and Claudia and Marilyn and others. We think of Joshua maybe coming home today or soon. We ask your blessing. We pray for those who are struggling in mind or body. We pray for those who are battling mental health difficulties or or strain. We pray for those who are living without feeling hope. We pray for those who are have broken relationships. We pray for those who have become uh, stale in their faith for us when we do. Would you renew us? And then we turn to this table and we come to take this bread and this cup and in doing so we declare our faith in you, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Build your church. Bless us in this, we pray, and help us to see the hope of the world, our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord Jesus, what you have done for all, we ask this in your name. Amen.